Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio Welcome to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. This is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry. Today, I'm speaking with Lisa Fields. Lisa is the founder of the Jude 3 Project, an apologetics organisation doing some really important work to help Christians communicate and defend their faith. Lisa is herself an in-demand apologist whose areas of expertise include race, incarnational apologetics and engaging the next generation. Lisa, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to, to be here. Uh, I know it's, I thank God for technology. Uh, we're not in the <laughs> same country, but we can still have a conversation because of platforms like zoom so i'm excited to be here so lisa just just for um just for context you're actually in jacksonville florida aren't you at the moment which is amazing um (laughs) at the time of recording this we are we're both still in some measure of lockdown Mm -hmm. tell me a bit about how life's changed for you since the pandemic started so life has been different Um, i was traveling all the time before this um and so definitely now just home stationary um, in addition to that, a lot of Zoom meetings, um, a lot of uh, conference calls. Um, and it's, it's funny because sometimes you think, okay, I'm off the road. I won't be working as much. But I feel like uh, with this new reality, uh, many of my friends and I have said we feel like we're working more mm-hmm. um, than we were before. I don't know if you, you feel that same way um, because there's meetings on top of meetings on top of meetings. Uh, to try to pe- keep people connected, uh, but you end up doing more work and you definitely focus on your work because you're in Zoom meetings. So, <laughs> so what's your, what does your work look like on a day-to-day basis? What sort of things are you doing? Um, it could look like recording podcasts. It could look like uh, editing. It could look like uh, brainstorming meetings. It's just, it varies from day to day. So in terms of America at the moment, Lisa, I mean, we've been kind of watching and on the news about the number of deaths and, and um, Trump's response. How has the church been responding to, to the pandemic? Yeah, I think it depends on the different sects of churches. So I think, um, in, especially in African-American space, which I'm probably more familiar with than any other space, I would say there's a lot of aid going on. Um, African-American churches, many are becoming testing sites um, to help with people on the margins who are not able to get testing. Um, So they're really trying to be the hands and feet in this time, um, pivoting from from in-person services to online services, um, which can be a challenge if if the congregation is elderly. Um, (laughs) So I think everybody's kind of trying to pivot and trying to find ways in which to protect um, people. And I think really in our African-American context, 
it's even more challenging because we're the ones who are disproportionately affected by it. I think African-American pastors are trying to be careful in how they engage their um, parishioners so they won't put them even further at risk, but they'll also be an aid and a help. So you have churches like in Chicago, um, like my friend Watson Jones and Charlie Dates, who have created with other churches this um, coalition to help fund where those people on the margins who can't get food they make sure they provide food for them um, mm-hmm. during this time. So I think different churches are responding in different different ways. Mm-hmm. Another big event going on, of course, at the moment is the, the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, and we've been watching that on the news here. And we've been we've been having our own, we've had our own demonstrations in cities across the UK. Mm-hmm. Do you have any sense, Lisa, why this particular tragedy has led to such an impassioned response to racism around the world? I think particularly with the George Floyd, when you see someone um, put their their knee on someone's neck for almost nine minutes on video, it's, uh, it's no dispute to many that this is an injustice. You know, I think this is one of the times where people are saying, like, they're forced to reckon with the, the, the injustice in our police system. And the visual, I think, provided, like we've seen people get shot, but getting shot is kind of an immediate thing in, in most cases, if you shoot a person multiple times and you can kind of be sens- desensitized to it. But that kind of suffocation on, on camera, I think really um, created a reaction into in people's hearts and like was like this is enough is enough we'll get on um later to talk a bit more about some of the issues affecting people of color but for now let's turn to your story lisa on the profile we'd like to find out how our guests grew up where they grew up and how they became christians can you share a little bit about your journey to faith yeah so i'm a pk a pastor's kid um so um i was i've been in church my whole life i was uh born on a sunday and my father was uh a minister of music. He was over the music department at a larger church in Jacksonville, Florida. And so he was on the organ playing when he found out that my mom was going into labor. So he rushed to the hospital, was able to see me be born, uh, uh, saw me after I was born, and then went back to church and <laughs> continued to play, <laughs> finished his, his responsibilities and then came back. Um, so... Um a little bit about how like my family is immersed in in church culture and that's been my life for most of my life um got saved during my teenage years and I almost I always say if you grew up in church you get saved multiple times uh <laughs> because of every youth revival they're like uh rededicate your life so you have like a whole bunch of rededications and you don't quite know which one took all the way. (laughs) (laughs) But I think my faith really became my own when in college. Um, I never quite questioned why I believe what I believe. I was immersed in church culture. I was in a Christian bubble. My parents taught me the Bible. My friends came from a similar background. Um, So it was like never, oh, this isn't true. It's kind of like, I just, of course it's true. Um, I didn't have any reason to question it until I got to college and I took a New Testament course really just to sharpen my faith and thinking this would be like Sunday school, but it was a, just a regular secular university. It wasn't a Bible college. So I didn't realize that New Testament 
at a secular university was different <laughs> than Sunday school learning New Testament. And so I had no frame of reference for that. And so the first day of class, my professor said, I'm going to change everything you thought you knew about Jesus. And I was, that's, at that very moment, I was like, I don't think this is going to be like Sunday school. And uh, she really challenged me. And I was, I really went into like this crisis of faith. Like, do I really believe the Bible? Like, can I trust it? Um, it was so many different authors. Like the t- we used the textbook from Bart Ehrman. And so Bart Ehrman is a professor at UNC Chapel Hill and he tries to discredit um, the authority of scripture. And so he always talks about the dating and he pushes the dating further out. And like, I'm starting to question because I had never thought about these things at all. So it all came like at me at one time. And so my dad through that experience was like, well, you should check out uh, this apologist named Robbie Zacharias. And so I started listening to Robbie fell in love with his work and it really helped me navigate the questions that I was dealing with. As I got into apologetics, I was like, well, outside of Robbie, I don't see really many people of color. Um, I, and I didn't see any African-Americans. Um, mm-hmm. So I wanted to do something to bridge the gap for African-Americans and apologetics because I think a lot of just majority culture apologetics was missing the questions that African-Americans were having. And what kind of questions do you think that those those are coming from the, the African-American community. How are they different from the questions that are being asked by other groups? Mm-hmm. So classical apologetics spends a lot of time on proving the existence of God. Um, and in the black community, atheism isn't usually something that's thriving. Um, it's on the rise, but it's still a slow rise in our communities. So most black people believe God exists. It's where is he in suffering? And then in light of the cultural, um, the cultural um, impact that racism has had and how the Bible was misused in slavery, like where was God during that time? Mm-hmm. Um, is Christianity a white man's religion? Um, and so those all came from the manipulation of scripture during um, the transatlantic slave trade, slavery, antebellum slavery, and all of, all of those things. And I guess I've heard people say that because there are so few, well, maybe not in, the, in America, but certainly in the UK, there are so few black theologians mm-hmm. that, that you don't get um, even the kind of the body of theology to refer to if you're asking those questions. And it's mm-hmm. just, or it's considered a sort of niche area so I think it's quite difficult for people. That's, that's certainly the conversations I've had with, with people. Yeah. And I think when, when we think about like the black theologians, I think there are many more than we even know. It's just that they aren't always platformed in a way mm. that others are. And yeah. so um, one of the work, some of the work I've been doing is making sure we platform those people who, mm. who don't have those platforms. So tell me about how the Jude 3 project came about then, Lisa. You, you talked a bit about, you know, your own personal journey. But I guess there's a big, a big leap between, you know, initially seeing that there's uh, a gap and there's mm-hmm. a need to actually establishing, you know, a big successful organization that you now run. So tell me a bit about how G3 Project came about and how you got it off the ground and, and a bit about what you do now as, um, as in the role of kind of heading that up. Yeah, and I'm shocked that I even do that. I, I spent most of my life wanting to be a stockbroker after my fifth grade teacher made us play the stock market game. And I was like, man, when I grow up, 
I'm going to be a stockbroker. I'm going to work on Wall Street. I'm not going to be in ministry at all. I'm going to go to a mega church and just sit in the back because I have been involved in church life my whole life. So I was like, this is how my life is going to be. I even, when I was, funny story, in college, I was dating the guy and he told me that God had called him to be a pastor and I broke up with him just because of that. That was how anti-being in ministry I was. <laughs> but God had other ideas, presumably. <laughs> yeah, he did. Um, and so, um, so taking that class really shifted me. So I switched from financial invest, uh, financial investment major to investment finance major, I'm sorry, to uh, PR and religious studies. Um, and I only chose PR because I, could I had a lot of free courses in which I could take as many religious studies courses as, as I wanted because our school didn't have a major, but they had a minor. But I took enough classes to have a, a, a major because there, I had a lot of free electives in that major. And so, um, and my parents didn't want me to just get a religion degree. They wanted me to have something to fall back on. Um, so I chose PR and religious studies, not thinking they would ever work together, but I use them every day now um, <laughs> in tandem. And so then, strangely, went into banking after college, got a job working as a banker for Bank of America, then went into mutual funds for Merrill when they uh, merged with Bank of America. So yeah. I did that for two years. And then I was still teaching apologetics courses at my, my father's church. And one of the church mothers was like, when are you going to go get your master's? You're really good at this. And that was about the end of June of 2014. Is that 2014? No, 2012. That was the end of June, 2012. And from that moment, I just felt the Holy Spirit tugging on my heart. And so the only school that had open enrollment was Liberty University, which I didn't know really much about Liberty. Um, and that's a whole nother uh, conversation in itself. Uh, but I was like, well, I'll just, if I don't do it now, I'm not going to do it. So I, I quit my job on faith, packed up and moved on a whim to Lynchburg, Virginia, because I <laughs> felt like that's what God wanted me to do. So not knowing anybody, that's what I did. And then the last year of seminary, uh, 2014, I started the G3 project, just a website not knowing really what God was going to do with it, no formal business plan, and really just it grew over time and to what it is right now. So tell me about some of the um, incredible stuff you've been doing with G2-3 Project. Tell me about some of the most exciting projects you've been involved in. So um, two of the most exciting projects that we've done is our HBCU tour, Historically Black Colleges and Universities, in which we hold these forums um, to um, challenge students on this false narrative that Christianity is the white man's religion. Um, and we, we started it because we were hearing from students that that was big on their campus and they didn't really know how to engage or defend their faith. And so I thought it would be a good idea to have those type of apologetic forms on black co college campuses that really are neglected in the apologetic space. And so that's what we did. And we've done multiple schools over the last several years, I'm excited to, that's why I'm so excited. I will be so excited when this Corona stuff is over because I love engaging with students on college campuses. <laughs> and I mean, they're like, well, we can do virtual, but it's just not the same interaction. <laughs> um, and so in addition to that, we had Courageous Conversations, which is our annual conference in which we pair black 
leading conservative scholars with black leading pro progressive scholars on topics like they um, on topics like justice, sexuality, the authority of scripture, um, reaching black millennials. There's a whole gamut. Uh, we've had 13 conversations um, in person and we did several virtual ones before we even had the conference. And so those are two of my favorite projects. Um, and also we are rolling out, we rolled out our curriculum. We have an online course, but we're trying to roll out an online academy. So that'll probably be um, my third favorite project once that's launched. And so in terms of that question, Lisa, you know, is Christianity the white, white man's religion? How do you even go about answering that? Um, I always start when, when engaging a person one-on-one -on -one is why would you feel, why do you feel that way? Because a person usually has experiences um, that feed that. And so I want to hear from them, like, what is their, their starting point with, with mm -hmm. that? And even in forms, we try to do that. So in our um, on-campus form, we start with a thing called talk back, where we let the students tell us why they think that before we even start the discussion. Because mm -hmm. I feel like that's important to listen. I think the biggest thing we could do as apologetics, apologists is be good listeners. And so um, listening well is important for that question. And then usually it's some personal trauma that goes along with that question that needs to be engaged first before you get to the information. Now I could just, many people just like to throw information on people, but I don't think that's always the wisest thing, especially when they have trauma that is the root of that. And so mm -hmm. if you engage the trauma first, you have a better, um, you have a better chance to ha actually engage the idea um, and helping them transform, help transform their thinking in relationship to that. Just to sort of clarify, when you're talking about trauma, you're talking about things like racism. So racial trauma, um, having microaggressions um, in church from white parishioners or just understanding the history of racism in America and the church. And so people bring all that with their question. And so engaging that I think is, is first. And then once you engage that, then you move to information. I try to push people further back in history to look at early Af African history, knowing that the early church fathers were African, Athanasius, Tertullian. And so people that really shaped our Christian doctrine were African people. And so helping people see that I think helps combat that, that narrative. And are you seeing a lot of people respond and a lot of people coming to faith through your work? Um, sometimes it's immediate. Um, many people come and they're about to walk away from Christianity. So the first one we did, one of the guys uh, got up and he, during Q&A, he was like, I'm here because I'm on the verge of walking away from Christianity. And I felt like coming here may give me some reason to stay. That's really a big pool of people <laughs> that we've, we've been minister, ministering to. It's kind of like that Jude pulling some from the fire, that passage in Jude. And I feel like our ministry definitely pulls more young adults from the fire than anything. Mm -hmm. Young adults who grew up in church and they're like on the verge of leaving and they run across our ministry. And then they're like, okay, this is clarifying for me. This is helpful. And so, um, yes, we do have some people come to faith, but also I think, and that would be 50%, but the other 50 would be those who were literally pulling from the fire. That's really interesting. And what is it, what are, what are the, the driving factors for those people? What's pushing them out of churches? 
So I think their experience in church, uh, if you grew up in church, you could see the hypocrisy and you could get tired of it. Um, one of the things is, I think for millennials and Gen Z, is seeing their parents be so um, engaged in church, but it not um, change their personal attitude towards them or others. So they're like amazing in church, but horrible at home. And so it's kind of like, if you go to church all the time and you're doing all this and you're a public success, but as a parent, you're a private failure, I don't want that faith. So I think that's a big portion of it. Them seeing, understanding the history of Christianity in America is also a factor. Um, and I think also just trying to find peace. So there are really uh, five P's, I call them pain points that I think people are really looking for in this day um, as it relates to faith. They're looking for personhood, which falls under identity, protection, provision, power, and pleasure. Um, that might, that's six, uh, but <laughs> I think I added the pleasure uh, recently. But <laughs> that personhood, protection, provision, power, peace are the essential ones. And then people are also looking for pleasure, but the main ones are the first five I mentioned. And I think when we get to the root of many people's questions across racial lines, that's at the root of most of it. And so I think we have to show how the gospel um, meets those needs in order for them to see relevance in this faith. I'm going back to talking about racism again, because I think there are some people that, that actually say, come off it, There's, racism doesn't exist in the church these days, we're in 2020, you know, all the rest of it, or, or who, who kind of refuse to see or, or, or believe that there are differences between people. Do you think there's racism in the church? Um, and if so, how do you think we can combat that? Yeah, so I definitely think there's racism in the church. Um, I think um, there's structural and institutional racism. There's not just individual racism, but there's structural and institutional racism. And I think um, one of the ways we combat that um, is, well, three ways. We listen, we lament, and then we legislate. And when people think of legislation and policies, that's also, you know, government policies, but also we can think of legislation as how we work within these systems that have in these denominations that have their own kind of government and their own um, rules and laws and how they abide and we could see how can we dismantle that like you, you think about the southern baptist convention and how much of their funding came um, from slave owners um, their initial funding and so what can we do to to act justly in those situations how can we make things right um how can we put laws in place in our own organization to, to rectify that. So I think those are some things we need, to, we need to do. But I think the listening part is really necessary because I think, you know, many Christians aren't good listeners. And myself included, I have to work to listen. It takes work, especially when you're knowledgeable about a topic, because you want to show off the information you've learned. You want to make sure people understand that you're, you're knowledgeable on a particular topic. So it takes work to just be silent and to listen without being defensive as well. So I think the church has to work on listening to those on the margins without being defensive, without, mm -hmm. if, if I say there's systemic racism to not necessarily mean I'm calling you yourself a racist. Like, you know, it's so much 
the defensiveness, I think, keeps us from moving forward. I was recently watching Michelle Obama's new Netflix documentary, Becoming. And in that, she said that of all the disappointments and the challenges of her time in the White House, the thing that had caused her the most trauma was the fact that voter numbers among the black community had remained so low. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Why do you think there is disengagement from the black community when it comes to politics? Mm-hmm. I think because... Um, we haven't seen much, the needle move much in our communities. And so if, if there's no actual like effect from us doing the work um, in the systems, then it, it's like, well, what's the point? I think it's kind of like throw up your hands, kind of like it's not going to help anyway. And so I think if we saw some legislations that deeply impact the community that make the community better it's it it motivates people but people are tired of seeing republicans get in democrats get in and the condition is still the same and so if the condition stays the same then it doesn't motivate people to get out there they want people want to see tangible results and so i think that's that's one of the things so do people feel that even under obama that their situation didn't improve yeah, I think some do. I think some do. Um, I think others might feel differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I think w- within, as far as the wealth gap, the wealth gap is still there where, you know, it is what it is that the black community is still is disproportionately um, affected um, in, in that space. So there's still a huge gap um, and wealth in black communities more so um phil visher the uh creative ve- veggie shows just released a very good explainer video on the wealth gap which i think will help people and is really helpful like black wealth in america is usually generated by home ownership and because there were laws in place and redlining and and government legislation that kept um, black people out of the home ownership game um we were that created a a wealth gap and so um, I think understanding that really will help people to understand why we still are in the condition we are in. Well, that brings us to the end of part one. Hang around for more from Lisa on the challenges she's faced as a black woman in the apologetic space. Pop on the kettle, put your feet up oh. and enjoy the company of Premier Christianity magazine. Premier Christianity, the UK's leading Christian magazine, full of inspirational stories from a Christian perspective. Immerse yourself in current affairs, articles, trends and interviews. And now benefit from our monthly subscription, just £4.95 monthly for print and digital access. Search Premier Christianity online today. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. Today I'm speaking with Lisa Fields, the head of the apologetics organisation Jude 3 Project. In part two of our interview, she explains how the complementarian evangelical culture in America has stymied her progress in ministry, and she shares the best advice she's ever been given. Listen in. And it's, it's been fascinating, hasn't it? Just sort of America in the last decade, we've just been talking a bit about some of those changes. But, you know, we saw the first ever black president elected and he came in with a message of hope and change. 
And then that's been followed by Trump, whose language many people have described as divisive. Lisa, can you shed any light on why you think Trump has got such a loyal supporter base among evangelical Christians? Um, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I think one of the things is that many white evangelical voters are one and two issue voters. So they're focused on um, same-sex marriage and um, abortion. Well, no, three, and religious freedom. So those three guide everything that they, they mm-hmm. do. And their motivation for getting Trump in the White House was him electing judges um, that benefited their agenda. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where their loyalty lies. And also I think there is a fear that, you know, in, in a few years that they won't be the majority anymore. Um, minorities will surpass them in this country. And I think that there's a deep fear of being the minority. Be guilt around how they treated uh, minorities and not wanting to feel like they're going to get the the uh, that um, vengeance or you know they that could be that um, the deep commitment to to uh, the systems that they created. Um, and so I think that's that's some of the reasons why their commitment is so strong Mm -hmm. because it upholds their ideology and keeps them in power. Um, And so I think it's really about power and it's about their own prosperity. Which is quite antithetical to what Jesus taught, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it is. It it definitely is. Um, And I think even people who aren't that overt about it still have this deep, um, logging to to hold the power in this country. They might not say it like that, but you let them talk long enough and their ideals will start to show. So to move now to talk a bit about a bit more about your work, Lisa, in, in apologetics and that sort of arena has traditionally been quite a, a male dominated area, hasn't it? Yes. Can you share some of the challenges that that has thrown up as a woman in, in that space? Yeah, so I remember when I first started, maybe a year in, I was talking to um, a white evangelical leader um, that um, was in some ways trying to aid and help me. And he said to me, Lisa, you're going to have a very difficult time doing what you're called to do because you have some things working against you. And he was just being frank. He said, you're a woman, you're young, you're black and you're single. And he was keeping it real because he understood that organizations have a very difficult time giving to black people, number one, but number two, women, and women that are not married because <laughs> the, it's evangelical organizations are, can be very complementarian. I have a very complementarian ideology. And so that if there's no male that they feel is covering you, they feel like you're out here just all along. Like, yeah, who's the man that you're going to run your ideas through? And then they have a hard time interacting with women. So I found that many evangelical men struggle to even look me in the eye because (laughs) I don't know, I guess just a single woman or just a woman period outside of their spouse makes you a a temptress. And also it makes it difficult um, to have business meetings, right? because we live 
the culture of evangelicalism is a Billy Graham rule kind of culture. So you can't meet with the opposite sex by yourself, which makes it hard <laughs> when you're leading the organization. Have you navigated some of those challenges? Um, some, I just, you could have meetings virtually um, where you're not alone with them. That's, you know, conference calls. Some, I'm just X'd out of the room altogether. You know, I'm not able to, to enter that space because of those restrictions. Um, so that's, that's one, one thing. Um, I think when it, when it, in regards to fundraising though, that is the biggest challenge. Um, because people don't want to give to women led orgs and they struggle to give the black people period because they, so they won't say it out loud, but they don't trust black people to manage their money. Um, they'll never say it out loud, but it's a subconscious thing. That's that embedded racism mm-hmm. um, that's in American society. And stats show how um, underfunded Black-led orgs are. And so it's really pushed me to think about being more so not relying on fundraising, to relying on products and services. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the ways I've navigated. Like, I really have to not only be a nonprofit leader, but I have to operate as a real businesswoman, I don't have the luxury of just relying on people to give me support and funds. And so that's, I, I think that is helpful for me because that way I'm not, um, I'm not restricted in what I can say. I could really st- speak truth to power because when people give you funding, they can also cut it as fast as they give it. Um, and so that's why even many evangelical orgs can't even speak on justice right now because their funding will be cut. And so because I'm moving towards a more products and services model, I don't have to worry about that being my reality. Do you have anyone that you feel is championing, championing you and what you're doing? Yeah. So I think some orgs have been very supportive. I think one of the things I think is really providential is that Ravi was really big in me um, developing a passion for apologetics. And his organization has really helped me um, in, in support in that, in, that, in that way, financially. And, you know, so they have been a big support. So I'm very encouraged by them. And mm-hmm. it's only got, I feel like Providence, that that would happen because I wouldn't even be an apologist without Ravi. And then the <laughs> fact that later on God would send them in my life to, to help, I think is, is, is amazing. What advice would you give to other Christian women, Lisa, who are wondering whether apologetics is for them? I would say that we are really, I think, going to be the key to apologetics thriving in the next generation. Um, apologetics usually is debate-based. Um, it's very heady. It's trying to fight reason. It's trying to fight these illogical ideas and philosophical ideas with reason. And most people in this generation, the, their response is really deeply rooted in emotion and trauma. And so reason often misses those who are forming their arguments with trauma. It's like talking to a wall. And I think women are really good at understanding people's emotions. And I think our ability to do that helps us penetrate in a way that men can't. Mm-hmm. And we do it naturally. And so I think we should really 
um, embrace that and rethink and reshape apologetics through that lens. And so I think the next group of dynamic apologists are going to be women. And in a space where we were locked out and maybe not thought of as the best person to do it, I think men are going to be looking at us, looking to us to lead in this moment. They're not going to penetrate with many people and just arguing. I mean, you can have arguments all day, but I'm more interested in winning the person than winning the argument. And sometimes that means you don't respond to everything you think is absurd. There's some conversations where you're like, well, I'll, I'll let you have that. <laughs> we'll have another conversation about that at a later time. That's not a hill I'm going to die on for this conversation because I'm trying to get to the root. And I think women have the patience to do that. And so I would encourage the women that are listening to lean into that. Um, to study, to show yourself approved, know your stuff, but also mix that with the emotional engagement. Are you sort of trying to raise up, I mean, along with all the other things that you're doing, <laughs> are you, one of the things you're doing, raising up women to, to be apologists? Yes. Um, our new curriculum through Eyes of Color, it is, um, I curated it, but it's written by Yana Connor, an up-and-coming um, Black scholar that um, she's a few years younger than me, but I'm excited that to be working with her. We have interns that are, are Black women. Our, our whole team, I think it's Black women, um, <laughs> outside of maybe two, two men that help with other things. They help with graphics and video production, but everybody else on my team is a Black woman. And so I'm excited that I'm able to help them and give opportunities to them um to to um to lead in that way you said in the past lisa that if it hadn't been for apologetics you probably would have walked away from your faith Mm -hmm. what did what did you mean by that i needed something some kind of intellectual rigor um to engage what i was experiencing for my professor um phds professors can be intimidating when you're a freshman, sophomore, junior, senior in college, uh, because you, you're like, man, they know it all. They, they spent the time in school. And so that intimidation in that moment makes you want to like give up. And it was like seeing other scholars that had the same education, be able to interact with their ideas was what I needed to stay in. Just talking more generally about your your life and your faith. Over the years, Lisa, what do you think is the most important thing that God has taught you? I think to be more invested in being faithful than anything else. That faithfulness to him and living a life that pleases him in public and private is primary to my growth and development. To trust and rely on him. I think in this space where it's like, man, I feel like coming into, I feel like, God, you put me in a space where I'm such a disadvantage. (laughs) Like, why wouldn't you put me in an easier space? It's taught me to trust and rely, trust and rely on him for provision, trust and rely on him for connections, trust and rely on him for just emotional support. Uh, Because there's not many people who can identify with the space I'm in. Mm -hmm. And so that you feel lonely a lot of times, and I have to really trust in the Lord. 
And I guess that, that brings me on to my next question, which is how do you make sure that you're growing in your relationship with God every day and that you are putting God at the center of your life? How do you do that? Um, I think one of the things that helps me grow is my circle um, that keeps me accountable. And I always tell people, always have a circle that doesn't care about any of the notoriety or any kind of, even people that aren't even in the circle. So when I could get excited about like, I, one of the most exciting days of my life was when I met Robbie. I was excited about that, but there's so many of my friends that didn't know who he was. So it was like, oh, okay. Like, and just continue to go on to the next thing. If my circle was just full of people who were, had the same interests and were like me, I think it could be very toxic to my growth because it will always be feeding my ego and I will always feel like I'm bigger than I am. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the keys to my development is having people around me. I'm at the same church I've been at my whole life, my father's church. Everybody knows me since I was a kid. So nobody's like blowing smoke <laughs> in, my, in, my, in my face. They're like, oh, we're excited. But it's like, okay, can you still go get the trash? You know, I think that's key to my development and, and growth is to stay around people who don't, aren't fascinated with who you are um, mm. and what God is doing in your life. And what would you say was the best piece of advice you've received during your Christian walk and who did it come from? I say my mom. Um, she reminded me that Christianity is not a, a sprint, it's a marathon. And that faithfulness has to be lifelong. She always told me like, yeah, you could be thriving right now, but if you live 70 years, like <laughs> I'm 33, that's a substantial amount of time left. And so that faithfulness to God is a lifelong endeavor. And so that I have to realize that I could be running now, but I have to make sure I run to the end. And so I think that's the best piece of advice that I've received because it helps me keep things in perspective and knowing like this is a window of time. We see throughout the Kings of the old Testament, some of them did well for most of it and then fell off, you know, look at Solomon. He did well and then fell off. And so I don't want to be the person that does well and has a whole bunch of accomplishments and then forsakes the Lord at the end or in the middle. I want to be consistent throughout the process. And Lisa, if you could go back in time and give your younger self a little bit of advice, what would that be? I think it would be to tell my younger self that everything will be okay. <laughs> it will be okay. I think I thought some things were, were more pressing than they were and um, that it would, it would be okay. It's going to be okay. What kind of things would, would those be then? Um, I think just start organizationally. Like I didn't think that <laughs> I would make it this far. And so I was like, oh, this isn't going to work. Um, many times I was like, oh, this, is gonna, this isn't, we're not going to get far. People are not going to accept our requests. Like all of those things come, come to your mind. Oh, we're not going to get sponsors. I remember when we did the first Courageous Conversations, and I had really almost zero dollars. And I said, we're going to do it. And they told me, you're going to need about 50000 And I was like, okay. And I, I signed all the contracts. <laughs> I booked all the speakers, literally, on faith. And that was the most, um, that was the scariest 
five months in my life <laughs> because I had to really trust in God. And I'm looking like, this isn't going to work. People are going to think my organization is a sham. People are going to get here and I'm not going to have their honorarium. I'm not going to have the hotel expense. I, I'm not going to have any of it. And, um, but the Lord provided. And I, I realized how much time I wasted that I could have enjoyed if I had have just trusted fully in God during that time. So I would definitely go back and tell myself it's going to be okay. I'm looking forward now, Lisa. What, what are the kind of new and exciting plans for Jude Free Project? I mean, I'm sure the pandemic has probably uh, affected a lot of what you were, you were going to be doing this year. But, but what are the kind of things that God's been speaking to you about um, in lockdown? Or what, what are the kind of the plans you have for the organization going forward? Mm-hmm. Um, definitely want to expand um, with the online inca- academy. Um, we're doing some work right now, um, reshaping our curriculum to make it, um, specifically for, um, high schoolers and college students. Um, so this is through eyes of color. It's just for the everyday church core, but we want to change some things to make it relevant for youth and college students and the concerns they have, um, for them. So that's, that's one of that. That's one of the things we're going to be doing. We're going to be creating more video content. Um, that's engaging younger people um, around apologetics and how it's unique to to black spaces. So those are some things I'm excited about and doing more. I really want to hit every HBCU in the nation. That's that's my goal. That's one of my goals. And so um, I'm really excited to 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 try to create ways in which we can fund us reaching that goal. So. Just for the English audience, is that the, the equivalent of the Christian Union in universities? Yeah, creating forums in which we could also create other events to help train on those campuses, yeah. And in terms of your time in lockdown, do you, I mean, you said you've been very busy, so you may have found it difficult to find time to, to sort of spend with, with God. But do you feel like God is speaking to you about anything in particular at this time or directing you in any, in any particular way at the moment? Um, I think one of the things God keeps kind of pushing me, pushing on me is to trust in him, um, to trust, to trust him with all that I have. And even though, you know, you get through these, um, you get to these mountaintop moments after every mountaintop moment, it seems like you go straight down to a valley, um, in which you have to trust him to get up the mountain again. And so, really just trusting him, trusting his plan and trusting that he will guide and order my steps. And mm-hmm. so that's, that's one of the, the major things, which is an ongoing thing throughout, throughout my life. <laughs> well, look, Lisa, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to tell us a little bit about the work of G3 Project and um, wish you all the best with that. Thank you, Megan. It was a joy. Well, that's all we've got time for today on The Profile. But join us again, same time, same place, next Saturday on Premier Christian Radio.